Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. In this episode, a follow-up to our special on resignations, I speak to Mark Harper, the Conservative MP who resigned as Immigration Minister in 2014 in what is now seen as a textbook way of resigning to clear the way for a comeback later on. I began by asking him exactly why he had to go. So basically, I was the immigration minister and we were in the process of taking through the what became the Immigration Act 2014, which was about making it more difficult to be in the United Kingdom if you weren't here legally. Although I had done all the proper checks um, when I hired my cleaner that you're supposed to do, you're supposed to look at their paperwork um, you know, and check that they are legitimately in the United Kingdom, because I was doing the bill... And so, you know, every day we were doing sort of the tests and you, you had a lot of um, employer organisations going, you know, is this reasonable and all that kind of stuff. I just sort of had this nagging thing at the back of my head that said, I'll just go and, you know, be like 100% absolutely certain that I'm completely, you know, clear, as it were. And so what I did was, which obviously wasn't open to me when I first hired the cleaner, was I, I took the copies of the documents that I'd taken and I actually took them into the Home Office and said to my officials, go away and check these are all right. And I just assumed it would be fine. Because what we ask employers to do is they just have to take reasonable steps. They don't have to do something heroic. They just have to have sight of your paperwork, take a copy of it, make sure you know you're okay. And, and we are improving that system now so that you can actually check with the Home Office and all that kind of thing. So I did that and just assumed it would be fine. And they come back and go, yeah, all, all absolutely fine. And uh, my private secretary, uh, my then private secretary came into the office the day afterwards with a sort of rather grim look uh, on his face and it turned out that the papers were forgeries and they weren't what they were supposed to be um, at all Uh, and it turned out that uh, she was in the country uh, and she wasn't here lawfully uh, and she'd effectively misrepresented that to me Um, and the only saving grace is that the officials that looked at the paperwork from my point of view actually they, they were pretty good copies actually and, and in terms of holding them out to be genuine. So um, I then was faced with well what do I do and obviously you do the basics you know I notified uh, number 10 um, explain what the problem was and I then had to think about what I did and I suppose for me uh, and I said this in my resignation letter uh, having seen you know what had happened to people when they got into difficulties before I took the view uh, particularly it was because I was the immigration minister yeah. taking the bill through that I needed to hold myself to a higher standard than we 
ask other people to do. Because you'd technically taken I, Yeah, steps. I had done, yeah. one of the arguments that we had after I resigned was about had I, you know, people were saying, oh, you should be prosecuted and so forth. Well, I had done what we ask yeah. legally employers to do. I had checked the paperwork. I had established, you know, beyond a sort of reasonable level that the person was here legitimately. And it was frankly only when, you know, the Home Office checked, which is not what most people yeah. are able to get them to do, that we established that wasn't the case. But I took the view that what I didn't want to do was damage our ability to take this legislation through. And my view was I couldn't really keep standing up arguing for taking a tough line on with stuff and whatever if you know people could argue that I hadn't done that myself, even though I had actually done all the checks that I'd done. So I took the view that that wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good because of the particular role I was holding. So I had to think about what I was going to do. And I, I met with the... Um, uh, the then Prime Minister, uh, David Cameron, and sort of we talked the situation through. And I went away that evening to reflect on what I should do. You know, you are kind of thinking, you know, I've worked really hard to become an MP and I'm a minister. And there's a sort of part of you that goes, I don't really want to have this end. But there's also part of you that sort of goes, well, you sort of have to try and do the right thing. So I thought about it. I, I actually kind of, I think, knew pretty much straight away that morning when my private secretary came in and told me. I think... So what, when that happened, yeah. particularly as you thought this was a belt and braces approach, yeah. you were pretty confident it was all fine. Yeah. What goes through your mind when you can basically see your, your ministerial career sort of well, collapsing? Well, it, well it, was, it was strange, actually. I mean, p part of it was, was that, was the, oh, my goodness, this is all a bit of a disaster. But actually, funny, funnily enough, although I took, took the time overnight to think about it, part of my brain went... I know what now needs to happen yeah. sort of thing. There was part of me that went, this is what I need to do. I don't know what it was that made me think that, but I, I just sort of did. And actually, I didn't. That I had that initial sense that I needed to, to stand down. But I, I took the time overnight to reflect on it, and, and uh, David Cameron was very generous in allowing me to do so. Uh, and I thought about it, and I, came, I didn't change my mind overnight, and I spoke to, uh, I, I let number 10 know in the morning what I intended to do, and, and drafted a as you do in these cases, a, a resignation letter, and he does a reply. He does a reply. So what, what did he say to you in that meeting? Was he trying to encourage you to stay, or was he saying it might be best for everyone if you took a little break? Well, no, we, we genuinely just talked through the options. I mean, there were two options, really, which was stay or go, uh, and we just sort of talked through what, what the consequences yeah. would have been in each of the scenarios. And then I said I would, would reflect on what I thought the best course of action was. And I said it was very generous of him to allow yeah. me the opportunity to think that through for myself. Um, and as I said, I, I spoke to them the following morning and said, this is what I've decided to do. Uh, and then it was about how you manage that process. And we, we also took the view that because we knew about it and nobody else knew about it, my sense was we just need to be very straightforward about it. We need to say, what has happened? why I have decided because of the job I had and what I was doing with the immigration bill, why I thought that set of circumstances meant that I should resign. And we should put all the facts out there ourselves and not get into that thing where you sort of tell part of the story, but there are lots of unanswered questions. And yeah. so we put the statement together we put it out ourselves uh, on the Saturday. What was the gap between you? Oh, it was very, very short. I mean, literally, I think it was the Thursday morning. OK, so it was pretty quick. So it was the Thursday morning when I discovered that the paperwork wasn't in order. 
and then I reflected on it and made my decision on the Friday and we put it out the very next yeah. day. So there was no kind of, we weren't managing it in a sort yeah, of, yeah. it was literally as fast as we could do to establish the facts. And there was also, without giving away anything that I shouldn't, there was also the fact that the person concerned wasn't in the country legally. And so yeah. there was also the fact that there were some steps that needed to be taken by law enforcement agencies that we didn't want to um, uh, prejudge or, or make go wrong yeah, yeah, yeah. by me saying something well, publicly. On the so, um, so that was a consequence as well. But we did it as fast as sort of we humanly could yeah. with all of those other factors uh, in, in place. We, we thought we would put everything out there. So I had to work with them on a resignation letter that said, here's what's happened, here's why I've chosen to do what I've done and whatever. And then we also had to put together, the, we sort of had the facts so that there yeah. was a proper Q&A that, yeah. that if, if there were questions we hadn't, we, we sort of could put all the facts out there. And then also if there were any questions. Yeah. And I know at the time, I think the view of the media was that we'd been pretty as upfront and straightforward yeah. as you could in the sense that there wasn't much for anyone to ask that we hadn't covered yeah. in the statement we put out. And those few questions that people had, number 10 was able to answer them all very straightforwardly. And so the Sunday newspapers ran the story, explained what had happened. It was a bit on the evening news on the Saturday, um, explained what had happened. Uh, and then it, there was a little bit of follow-up in Monday. And then, frankly, it didn't really get any coverage yeah, because yeah. it sort of something happened. We put all the facts out. There was no sort of there were no further facts to yeah, come yeah. out. We just said, this is what happened. This is what I've decided to do. And there was a general sense sort of from the response I got from, from colleagues, and also actually I got some letters from members of the public that people generally judged that um, they thought I had done the right, you know, yeah. I'd responded well to a set of circumstances and I'd done the right thing. And actually the Home Office, particularly under New Labour, it became a sort of routine that every so often a minister there would get into trouble, for, mm -hmm. not necessarily for personal things, but policy things, and they'd be sort of dragged over days, if mm. not weeks, to what everyone assumed was going to be the yeah. position of them having to resign. So that actually being quite short and sharp is quite unusual in that sense. On that sort of Friday, when it all explodes, what do you do? Do you sit and look at your phone and watch the TV, or do you do shut yourself away and well, try to switch off? Because this was one of those cases where... We, we were telling the world about it yeah. rather than the world asking. It does at least mean that you can make sure that your nearest and dearest, as it were, that, yeah. know what's happening and, and, and it doesn't come as a surprise. Yeah. So, you know, you're able to tell, you know, your family know what's happening, your sort of local constituency party, the, all the, not all of them, but yeah. one or two key people know what's happening. So they don't, it doesn't come as yeah. a surprise to them, which is a good thing. But actually, you know, when it when it actually comes out, it, you know, it's not very good because you know, you 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 know, you've known for several days what's going to come out, but other, you you don't quite know what other people are going to do in response. And actually, in a funny sort of way, I was uh, I was quite heartened by the response because, as I said, um, colleagues were were generally very supportive, and the media handled it in a very straightforward way. You know, they reported the facts, um, they explained what I'd done. You know, obviously the Prime Minister then appointed a, a replacement and so forth, and uh, he was very good. I was very happy to work yeah. with him as a close colleague. And uh, it, as I said, it, it really wasn't a, yeah. a long-running story. I mean, as I said, there was a little bit of follow-up. There was some yeah. stuff in the Sunday papers. There was a little bit of follow-up in Monday, and then, frankly, it sort yeah, of yeah. wasn't really a, an issue, and, um, and it didn't drag on for a long period of time. Do, 
did David Cameron at that point tell you that you'd be able to come back at some point? No, he never made that commitment to me. He, he obviously um, indicated that at some point yeah. he would like to be able to do that. But no, I was never made any promises yeah. about uh, coming back or timescales or whatever. I mean, as I said, he indicated, and in fact, in the exchange of letters, yeah. he's, I think, in the final paragraph, indicated that he would like to be in a position at some point to bring me back. Yeah. So that not everybody gets that that point um was in the letter so yeah. but i didn't have any private assurances on yeah, top yeah. of what was in the letter he said publicly you know what he said publicly was what he indicated privately he'd made no promises a, about time scale so i'd sort of taken the view that i'd done what i thought was the right thing to do yeah. and then it was just well we'll see what happens and then i very quickly sort of you know um, knuckled down to supporting the government from the back benches and you know, chipping into debates yeah. and so forth in the house on things I was interested in, and uh, and you know, sort of took it from there, really. And then you came back as disabilities minister, <coughs> and then later chief whip. So mm -hmm. you were sort of poacher. I'm not sure poacher turned gamekeeper or gamekeeper turned poacher, but that role also involves dealing with this sort of stuff. Did you did you did you have to deal with any resignation? Well, it was a, when you a were... couple of things really. I mean, on the on the first point, I mean, what was quite nice was it, it was obviously a, a bit of a. Um, gamble for the Prime Minister, in a sense, bringing me back yeah. reasonably quickly. And what was quite interesting was when he reappointed me to the government in, in the uh, disability brief, what was interesting was the vast majority of newspapers and media organisations, I don't, I don't even noted, yeah. I mean, didn't even comment on the fact that I'd left, yeah. you know, a few months beforehand. And it just really wasn't a story. And then following the 2015 election, when, when he asked me to become Chief Whip, again, it never, yeah. clearly it I must have done something right because people didn't sort of raise it as an issue. No, and I think it did. I mean, it wouldn't be appropriate to go into any particular cases I dealt with, but it did, it did provide me with an insight into how you should conduct yourself in politics. It also gave me a, an, an enormous insight into how the media works yeah. in the sense of how the sort of deadlines work and, and when you put stuff out and the sorts of questions that journalists ask. And also the sense that if you actually handle things well, you know, journalists have their job to do. Yeah. But actually, my general experience from the media is they were very fair. You know, they covered the story. That's absolutely right. They should do so. It was a story. Um, but they, they, you know, they put the facts out there. We were as transparent as we possibly could, um, which I think was appreciated. And I, I think broadly, I think the media was pretty straightforward about it. And I didn't feel... I don't think at any point that I'd been unfairly treated. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a great story for me and it wasn't great to live through, but it, I got a fair hearing, I think. But it, I think that did provide me with some insight into these sorts of difficult situations. I think from a journalist's point of view, the thing that turns what could be a small incident into a bigger incident is, is the way that people react to it in that moment and the statements they put out, mm. which don't quite match the previous one. And, all that. and it's that sort mm. of snowball effect, which is you're right, if you put all the facts out at the beginning yeah. and you react to it, quickly yeah sometimes um, it's not enough and other things come along but no you know but, people say it's always the cover-up that gets them in the end mm -hmm. but that sort of sense of cover-up or not being straight or holding things yeah back we, we tried to be as transparent and the other thing we did on the on the Saturday evening when the story came out I, I filmed a, a short clip you know we'd agreed that I think the BBC would do it yeah I think it was the BBC that did it um, from my <laughs> local regional thing and we we did that in my constituency office and they filmed a piece to camera where yeah. they asked me some questions they were their questions yeah. They asked the questions, I gave them the answers, and then they did a pooled yeah. thing with the other broadcasters. And I think the evening news that night ran, yeah. you know, the sort of questions, three, three or yeah. four questions, I think. And then that, that was really the only...
big demand really for for broadcast. But it was kind of people felt you know I'd I'd, I'd answered the yeah. questions that they wanted to ask. We put the statement out to the print media, and everyone had asked all the questions. You know they sort of did all the questions yeah, to yeah. death and felt that they'd been answered. Um, and as I said, and nothing came along afterwards yeah. either that anyone subsequently thought they'd forgot to ask at the beginning that you know came out. Yeah. We, we tried to put everything out there that we could yeah. that was appropriate. Um, and, and, and also respecting the fact there were certain pieces of information that weren't appropriate to put yeah. out there um, in, in a sort of law enforcement environment. But we tried to be as transparent as we could. And you know, the lesson that other people might learn from it is if you're transparent and open at the beginning, there's, you know, there's a way back. It's not leaving ministerial office isn't forever necessary. No, I, well, I, I, funnily enough, the one thing that stuck with me which I think was a useful lesson, is I, I've sometimes heard people who've, not, not people who've stopped being MPs, but who've stopped being ministers, talk about it as if it's sort of the end of their world, as it were. And what was interesting for me was two things. One was obviously because of partly how I handled it and partly because of you know, how the Prime Minister dealt with it, um, I, I was able to come back as a minister. But also I found that even when I was back being a backbencher, uh, it reminded me I still really enjoyed being a Member of Parliament and actually being a Member of Parliament is the best job in the world and you can do a huge number of really interesting things as a backbench MP. So funnily enough it also meant that when we had the change of Prime Minister post the referendum and uh, Theresa May didn't want me to continue uh, as a member of her cabinet, you know, I, I didn't sort of get enormously upset that I was back on the backbenches again. I sort of thought well what do I want to spend my time on and how did I want to carry on doing that and it sort of just I just think it meant I handled it better perhaps you know because I'd had that previous yeah, experience yeah. and the world hadn't ended and I still had best job in the world yeah and who knows that you know we might have a resignation from the Prime Minister one day and then you know somebody else might come along and offer you a job instead well that's entirely possible the one thing <laughs> I've learned in the one thing I've learned in politics is it's very unpredictable particularly over the last <laughs> few years but I mean I said I think the, the other thing is I think it's quite good just to do what you're doing. So in my case, being a backbench member of parliament, do it as well as you can. And that applies to ministers, you know, doing their job as well as they can and just see what happens. And life's a, life's a funny old business, someone once <laughs> said, and you just have to see what happens and, and, uh, and run with it. And, uh, and you kind of live, live to fight another day. Well, Mark Harper, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. And do please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device and leave us a review and we'll read out some of the best next week. For now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 